Okay, good. Uh, happy 2015, everyone. And we will just pick up as if we never stopped, even though we've had a long and glorious holiday season between class 51 and 52. For those watching on the internet, which is the majority of our audience, they won't know that, but now they do. Until now, now the secret is out. Okay. Um, I usually start by asking if anybody has any questions. I don't know if you remember from six weeks ago, if you might have had any questions. Did you want to, Tom? Um, let's wait until we get closer back to it, because I think we're a little far away from it right now. By the way, the question of what class we're going to do after we're finished, because we're not so far from the end, I had talked about doing the Rubaiyat. Did I say this already? But the Rubaiyat didn't work for me when I looked at it. It's, it doesn't lend itself to this kind of commentary, to my mind. It's just too poetic and beautiful and sort of says its own thing. But I probably will do conversations with Yogananda. Because it's more like, uh, well, I've just been doing the essence of self-realization on the webinar, and it's really, really been wonderful to go with Master's words. So that's probably what we'll do next, if nobody minds. Does anybody object? Okay, I'll take that as a yes. Okay, so now we are at Sutra 3.7. And this one is very quick. It says, these three, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi are more internal than the other five limbs. The other five limbs being yamas, niyamas, um, etc. And then Swami says, I see no need here for comment. And so therefore, neither do I. Okay. (laughs) Three, eight. But what he's really saying is we're moving, you know, from um, relation, right relationship to the external world to indifference to the external world. And really, truly, when you think about the yamas and the niyamas, which are the do's and don'ts of right behavior, it's all about how we get ourselves in right relationship with the world because if we're in dissonant relationship with the outside world, it's going to be hard to be at peace inside. And so there really is more to his comment. These three are more internal than the others. It actually says a lot to us because once you get yourself organized on that level, and I was thinking about it, it's a little like um, the way the entire science of yoga, of hatha yoga, claims to be based on Patanjali, but the word asana appears once in the entire scripture, and it is really referencing to having a firm seat in meditation. Um, In the same way, um, we tend to think of the spiritual path about having a right relationship with the external world, but the reason that we want that is so that we are freed then, so that we, cut, we, we are not bound anymore by that mayic delusion. It's not that we don't continue to participate, it's that we participate from a wholly different level. We're moving into what the state of the masters is more. So these last three, dharana, dhyana, dhyana, and samadhi, are more internal, yes, because we're getting to the source now. So, number three, eight. Even these three are external to the seedless samadhi. Hmm. And then he says, moksha, or final liberation, is beyond the state of ajivan mukta. With nirvikalpa samadhi comes freedom from any danger of falling back into ego. One still, however, remembers all his past incarnations and must be able to recognize them all as but the play of God. Ego identification with each of them must be eradicated. 
reading through this um, sutra and the ones that are coming after, as, as you all know who've been following this class, I'm way out of my depth now. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, serviceable when it comes to the yamas and niyamas, but by the time we get into all this stuff, I'm so far out of my depth that I have to, you know, grasp at straws. But there are some things still, even though uh, this is not really something I'm competent to speak about, that um, insights that come that are, that are still helpful. Um, there's a whole lot of discussion now about what happens after samadhi. And actually, Tom had brought something from Conversations. Why don't you give me your book? Um, which is uh, number 90. And he, it was about samadhi. And Master just says, quite simply, samadhi is no Sunday outing. <laughs> no lark one experiences for the mere fun of it. It creates an absolute revolution in one's consciousness. Samadhi is altogether different from anything the ego can possibly imagine. It's not merely from anything that we know. It's anything we can imagine on the walls, enjoyable beyond imagination of expectancy on this side. Well, I was just looking at this one. Enjoyable beyond imagination of expectancy, which is such a brilliant use of language. And he uses the same word here. This goes on to be the story about um, Dr. Lewis trying to um, coerce Master into giving him samadhi until Master actually threatened to give it to him. <laughs> and then it scared Dr. Lewis so much he, he, he really didn't want to. 98. Uh-huh. And uh, um, he says it creates a revolution in one's consciousness. I believe there's a conversation either in this book or elsewhere between Rajasi who was in himself always in a state of samadhi or often, and some other disciple, where that disciple was wanting Rajasi to give them the experience, and Rajasi said, once you had that experience, you wouldn't be able to stand your life. You just wouldn't be able to bear it, because the, the painful confinement of your life would be just unbearable compared to the freedom and the spirit that you would have in samadhi. Now, what I was thinking about also was that there's a certain expectation, at least has been in my own mind, that somehow you just cross over that line and then you're done. You know, that we kind of push, push, push like the little train. We get to the top of the hill and whatever this state of cosmic consciousness just comes to us and bingo, that's it. But what's going on a lot in this portion of the book, and so again, this is just me putting the pieces together somewhat with reason, maybe a smidgen of intuition but not experience, is that when, we, when that, the magnitude of that begins to open up in front of us, then all the implications of it start rolling down. And then we have to start integrating everything that that implies. Now, when I start thinking like that, that gives me something to do with all of this information right now, instead of just sort of waiting. It's a little bit like um, when Daniel Brinkley, who was very involved in 
end-of-life care. He was saying to people, since we have understood that what happens to us after we cross over from this world into the next is that we have a life review and we have to see and reconcile and come to terms with all of the experiences of this life. He said, if you're with people at the end of their lives, why don't we start that before we die? Why don't we just sort of begin to do the things that are necessary in order for us to transition freely? I, in this context, I'll, come, I'll, I'll tie this together in just a moment, but in this context, the traditional Indian system has been um, that at the end of life you just walk away. In the Mahabharata, there's a certain point where uh, the, the mother of the Pandavas and, and then the Pandavas themselves, but first the, the generation above them, you know, the war is over, the new kingdom is set up, and all the young men think they will enjoy it with their elders, but the elders say, basically, we've had it. And they just walk away from all of that, and they just spend the latter part of their lives in the woods, in the forest, with the sages, just meditating and letting it all go because you're going to have to let it go anyway. And the consciousness that we have at the moment of that transition into death has a very powerful influence on you know, what astral worlds we go to, what, what samskars we carry, um, what, our, what the time between physical incarnations will be and what the next physical incarnation will be. So it's very important that we... Um, die with as much freedom as we can. That's why Master says about healing, even if you know, your, your effort to make yourself physically well is unsuccessful and you, your body dies anyway, never give up the thought in your mind of radiant health because you don't want to carry into your, the astral world and into your next life this thought of, oh, I'm so sick, I'm just so sick, I'm so terribly sick because then you, you'll just have that. It's just always, I'm, I'm perfectly radiant and well in the light. You know, my body's dying, of course, but I'm still perfectly well and radiant and in the light. Um, now, in America, we have completely different systems, you know. You, my parents, at the end of their life, were in a care facility, and, you know, you have all the pictures of the family around, and to the very last, you're staring at who you always were, and and you have all the people who have defined you in a certain way and they're all clutching at you as you go. There's no thought. I mean, we're, we're better now, but we, we try to maintain that identity to the very end. Even when people go into a state of dementia and can't have it, the families desperately want them to take it back again. I mean, I don't know, I don't understand dementia deeply, but part of it is I'm finished here. My, own, my father went, uh, not, not, not super deep, but, you know, pretty far. He forgot most everything. And I just felt he just wanted a little holiday. <laughs> my mother had been ill a long time, and it had been quite a strain. And at a certain point, he just said, I done. <laughs> and he went kind of into this cheerful, semi-aware state for a couple of years. Okay, now, um, what I'm talking about with all of that is that, 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 that it, it, they speak of here, once you go into this state of samadhi, even though you see yourself in this cosmic relationship, you still must be able to recognize 
he still remember all your past incarnations and you must be able to recognize them all as but a play of God. Now the way Swami phrases this, and he phrases this also, he talks about it in the Gita also, it must not be that easy. Because in the Gita, he, um, that's the, the section that I've referred to where Swamiji gives real instruction about how purely through meditation you dissolve the remaining karma that's still, that you're still identified with egoically. That's be- the difference between jiv- being, being a jivan mukta and being entirely free. A jivan mukta, and Swami writes this in different places, a jivan mukta has the full God-realization. He, it's, he, he himself knows himself to be fully God-realized. And in other places, Swamiji says he can bring others to God. He can liberate others. An avatar has an unlimited capacity. He can free everyone who, who receives him. Apparently, a jivan mukta has a little less. But nonetheless, a jivan mukta can bring others to God. He can be a guru and he can liberate. But there's remaining this little bit of karma, which is there's still that identification. I don't exactly know. Swami articulates it exactly. There's some relationship to the past incarnations. And it has all of that has to be dissolved before you're completely free. So you have to be able to go through every incarnation. And I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm guessing... And I want you to really understand that I'm just extrapolating from the known to what it might feel like, but in such a way that I think is useful for us. You know, I, I myself have... I was actually thinking about it recently. I've, I've, I had one dream of a, a past incarnation that was I know was an absolute and real dream. And I, it really was a life, a very dramatic life that had a lot of effect on me in this life and so on, and I know that that one was true, and I mean, I saw the horses drawing the carriage and that sort of thing, it was that vivid. But I realized that there's a number of others, uh, maybe just three or four, that I've integrated into my understanding because my intuition tells me if, if this isn't the actual truth, it's so close to it, it might as well be. And it's samskars that either affect present relationships the one I dreamt was an important dream about a present relationship I was having, difficult one. And uh, all of these dreams have relevance. Either they, these past lives, either they formed my character in ways that I'm still working out, or they um, created karma between myself and others that I'm still working out. Whether true or apocryphal, I believe they're true. Now, the point being, it's very interesting to me how profound my identification with those experiences still is. Even though, you know, how long ago was it? On, on, uh, was it last night I was talking about, or was it on Sunday? But when I was talking about, uh, Sunday, when I was talking about writing Swami the letter of condolence for something that happened in the 1100s, you know, one of his previous incarnations and a tragic experience that he went through and I was so moved by it when I read it in a history book that I had to write him a, a letter of condolence about it. And he was, his response to me was, I appreciate your sentiment, but Asha, after all, it was a long time ago. Okay, but it wasn't a long time ago for me when I read it in the history book because I believe I was part of it. It was, it was many-fold. It was 
compassion for Swamiji and the, it was a tragedy in his life in that incarnation and somehow I, w- I think I was involved at the time. But it was just there, absolutely real for me because I'm still identified with it and the, the, the vritti is still vibrating in my chakras. Okay? So apparently, merely going into a state of cosmic consciousness, I, I think, of course, on a much higher level and much more subtle level than what I'm talking about now. But, you know, everything that's subtle is also manifested in the gross world. And just like it's a good idea not to wait till your last breath to consider whether your life has been well lived or not, and you have any, any situations that you need to resolve, it's like we don't have to wait for samadhi to begin to try to see the divine hand in all these experiences. In that... Uh, experience I had where I dreamt the incarnation it was an extremely antagonistic relationship I had with this other person at Ananda and in that dream that person's horribleness to me was enormously manifested ha, you know, that sort of so, you, like this and that's what I could say so the person about whom I dreamt got a psychic to tell her about me and it was, it was a pretty tit-for-tat situation. And uh, each of us had been pretty unspeakable. I mean, really, like, big-time, you know, MGM movie kind of unspeakable. Um, and there was, immediately, this tremendous um, self-justification that started building. And Swamiji called the two of us together and essentially felt that what we were the facts that we were dealing with were probably the facts. Well, to me, he said they were the facts, but they were the facts. But then he said, but one, this was a long time ago, and that those personalities don't exist anymore. And he didn't just mean that they were dead. He meant the consciousness that was capable of behaving that badly had been transcended. So even though there we were, you know, the same jiva, remembering the horror of each other's behavior and the fury that it created in both of us, but there was no, nobody there anymore. You know, neither of us could ever have replicated that because we had transcended that level because God knows we had suffered for it. Right? But these incarnations with us because we still identify with them. And see, the tremendous danger is that we justify the way we feel. Well, you see, of course, I'm very sensitive to that because this is how I felt then. And, of course, you know, I have this difficulty with you because you were thus and so. And whether we literally remember or not, nonetheless, we are behaving. That's what I realized when I had that dream. Because I, I had that dream. Like I, I dreamt the lifetime all night. I started at the end of the, of the life when everything had been resolved into peace and then I went backwards through all the horrific events that had pushed me as I were a widow in a monastery at, that, at the end of the dream. And I went through all the losses and the fights and the revolutions and, the, and I just all night I would, I would wake up and then I would fall asleep and I'd dream it again. And the next day when I saw the person who had been the antagonist in that, I mean like it could have happened in the morning. It was, it was an amazing demonstration to me that if 
the impression is in the heart and we're holding that vibration, time, time, space, distance, absolutely irrelevant because all that ever exists is consciousness. And so the mere fact that it happened a long time ago doesn't matter if it's the present consciousness and it was the present consciousness, right? But wow, how long do we want to live like that? And, and it's not, I mean, it's all really pleasant to think about what they did to me and how they owe me an apology. I had an amazing meditation when I was contemplating one of my, what I believe is a true past life memory and that I have had a great difficulty letting go of and clearing the air. I've had a, you know, I struggled with it for many years. I finally was meditating. Why? Why am I having so much trouble? And really, my little heart was honest enough to say, somebody owes me an apology. <laughs> you know, I'm so sorry, 500 years ago. You know, really, I, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings and ruin your life. I'm so sorry for the last 500 years you've had to deal with that. How can I make it up to you? But it was just amazing to me. Somebody owes me an apology. Wow. That's why it takes us so long to get free, you see. Now, the other side of it is, of course, because sometimes it's they did it to me, but remorse, regret, it just, I, I have had a recurring dream. This is not a past life memory, but it's a samskar. I have this recurring dream, which I haven't had in a long time, had this recurring dream, in which I had completely ruined my life, that everything had been going really well, and then I had behaved in a very um, undharmic manner and just allowed temptation and desire and foolishness and pride to cause me to do really stupid things. And now everything was ruined. You know, just you can imagine what that would be, stealing money, um, using power in the wrong way, letting sensual desire take you over, um, anything, losing your temper, something that would just be so stupid that but, but was irreparable for whatever reason. And then I would have this dream and I would just be caught. And there, would, there, was just, there would be in the dream always the sense of unbelievable despair just unbelievable. And then I would wake up, oh, oh, I was always so grateful. Oh my God, I woke up. And it's not true, it's not really happening, and it would just take a little time to shake that off. So it isn't just that they owe me an apology, it's just this uh, um, deeply depressing sense of uh, my having done wrong. Swami talks uh, in some um, some of the lectures I've been hearing him speak lately, about the disciple whose name was Daniel Boone, Boone. And he talked about how Boone used to have tremendous spiritual experiences. Swami talked about once coming in and Boone was just lying there, no heartbeat, no breath. And he had visions and he had all these amazing things happen to him. And in the end he left the path and he left Master. And Swamiji realized, in retrospect, he, he tells that story for many reasons, one of which is the mere presence of vision is no necessary sign of spiritual advancement. Later, Swami said that he realized Master was doing everything he can could to try to hold Boone to the path by giving him lots of experiences and things so he would uh, be magnetized. But Master also said to Boone just before he left, he said, your karma is of such complication 
that if you leave now, I think he said it'll be a hundred or two hundred lifetimes before you get back to this point. But then Master mitigated that when Boone did leave and said, but if you, if you work very hard and remain loyal, you'll be able to come back much more quickly. He may have even said just in a few lifetimes. But then Swami says with, with you know, tremendous anguish, but Boone didn't try hard. Soon after, when he realized what a mistake he'd made, he just fell into a state of despair and let everything go. Now, when something goes that deep into your spirit, imagine just merely suddenly realizing, this is what I'm extrapolating, that I am this infinite spirit. But what happens to all of that? You know, we like to think that it just goes away at the same time. But then they they all talk about this necessity to see each one of those lifetimes as just the play of God. And as I was saying in the Gita book, uh, Swami talks about, you know, sort of how to do this. And that was what I said to him at one point, that this, this section doesn't apply to very many people, does it? And he very seriously answered me, no, it doesn't, but to, for those to whom it does apply, it will be very, very helpful. And, you know, again, it's like there's this whole other reality that's going on there that nobody really talks to us about except, let me phrase it differently, that we read about in these um, scriptures that are going to take us all the way to freedom, that we're going to read for the rest of all our incarnations until we have transcended the need for scripture. And, and then step by step we'll move into each of these realities. But insofar as we can drag that into our present world and begin to work with it appropriately, which is, why not start now to, to disaffiliate ourselves from um, the extraordinary bondage of, of identification with all these life experiences. Now, I know how hard this is. I'm not saying that, that, I'm not glib about this. But this is one of those situations where Haridas came up with the um, acronym so many years ago, which you, you all know he called it Spy Dog. Haridas had this way of, has this way of just being so light and serious at the same time. He really has a gift. Solving problems in direction of God. That's what he called spy dog. That meant no matter how small the issue, solve it in the direction of God because then you will be going, everything will be taking you. And instead of saying, oh, this is too small, I don't have to deal with this. I can just hold on to this. I'll just get over it. Instead of really transcending it. Because every, every time we don't really let it go. All we're doing is just setting ourselves up and it's going to be harder later. Uh, There was a a moment I tell this story in um, my book about Swami Kriyananda. Um, There was a couple at Ananda, there was a a man who, who came to Ananda married, his wife came with him, but he very soon um saw another woman that he felt was really the woman he was supposed to be with. And he waited seven years 
But at the end of seven years, he, he said to Swami, you know, this is a karma that has to be f- fulfilled. It's, this is not working. And, you know, we were a very close community. So uh, Swamiji agreed that, you know, this, as he put it, the feelings, one cannot always control the feelings of the heart. And he felt like a noble effort had been made and therefore um, we had to go forward. And the next day he had a dinner party at his house and he invited both women and the man and a few of our other rest of us close friends all to come together and he asked the women to fix the dinner, those two girls. I'm such an idiot. I said, do you know what happened yesterday? And Swami said, of course I know. He said, but they're going to have to resolve it sooner or later. They might as well do it in this lifetime while they still remember why. Otherwise, he said, they'll just meet later and have this unreasoning antagonism and won't even know. And uh, the woman who'd been left said, well, if Swami thought I could do it, she said, I was willing to try. And she went into a state of grace that didn't last, but she said the fact that she'd been able to touch it so quickly um, vastly accelerated. And time passed and everything resolved, you know, and all. But really think about that. You know, and everything in normal ways of thinking rebels against it, but why would we cling to normal ways of thinking? Where will that take us? Is this easy? Oh, my Lord, no. But everything else is just stopgap. And then just, it's a, it's a pay-later policy. Escape now and pay later. And then later is always now, which is the bummer that we've dealt with quite a few times here. There's no such thing as later. So we just have to be very serious about this. And it tells us that at a certain point you have to realize, you have to let go of all regret, all remorse, all attachment, all everything, and just realize it was just the play of God. It wasn't really happening. Isn't it fascinating? Just even to to contemplate it? Any thoughts or comments or questions? Except help, yes? Um, what is the word seedless about? He doesn't refer to it in the in the commentary. External to the seedless samadhi. Is that a way of referring to nirvikalpa samadhi? Like it doesn't have that one little connecting seed core of the ego? He doesn't make any reference. He doesn't explain right. it, does he? The only word I could think of was causeless. When I read it, I read seedless as being the reality that has no cause. But I doubt if that's what it actually means. You know, I just was bewildered. And he doesn't help us. Tandva, you're the one who usually has, who usually has an intuit, intuitive answer to those questions, but in this case you've asked it. <laughs> well, I gave, it, gave my guess. Which was that it has no other... It's my guess was it, it was a way of referring to nirbhikalpa samadhi, just imagining the seed as sort of the ego that everything springs from is, oh, is okay. attached to. Um, yeah. And so, and sabhikalpa samadhi still has that, and then right. nirbhikalpa doesn't. Um, do you have any Sanskrit intuitions on this one? No? Okay. Sometimes, I mean, I'm not looking to... Yeah, we can't even tell 
translate a word or if he was being poetic. <laughs> I guess yeah, it's a exactly. trick. So, okay, we're just stuck. But it's a good question. If anybody comes up with an answer between now and then, let us know. Maybe, um, I don't know if you're able to look it up and, you know, in the meantime and just sort of see if you can give us any insight from the Sanskrit. Um, Atma Jyoti, do you want to use the mic? There it is. Mm-hmm. So I think this is irrelevant, what I'm going to just observe, um, but it, uh, about the timing. Okay. I mean, like, so Swami, who, or um, Janakananda, who were free, did they remember their past incarnations before leaving their body? I mean, is it like, like you say, we could start now? I mean, uh, I mean, it, don't we have millions? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, even like, how long does it take? Um, well, if Swamiji was attained moksha, which is what Master said he would attain, um, that meant that he had to have been Jivan Mukta when he was born, even though that was never spoken of in that way. Um, Rajasi was Jivan Mukta. He was freed while living. And he also became liberated. So did uh, Sister Gyanamata. So therefore, whatever this process is, it must have been done. In the um, Gita... Well, quick means... Oh no, but quick doesn't mean they did not the last three seconds before they passed. They were probably doing it their whole lifetimes. The whole lifetime was a question of letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. How, how you know, uh, much of a, of a two hours a day project is it? I don't know. You know, whether you're, are you sitting in meditation and I'm up to the 1700s and now I'm past the amoeba stage? I just don't know. There's no way to know. There's no way to reason it. And certainly it would seem to me that you would... But he says you have to see yourself in all of those. But see, in the Gita commentary, which I can't clearly remember right now, Swami tells you how to do it more efficiently. Just a few sentences, but he he comments just about how you can just in meditation dissolve whole incarnations by just seeing it from the right point of view. But you have to then want to let it go. And of course, in in the state of samadhi, you realize the folly of holding on. In our state, we still want someone to apologize, and then we'll let go. In the autobiography, it refers to Sri Yukteswar deciding not to come back here to Earth and hanging out there on the astral planets and helping those beings who are not reincarnating physically anymore but are still continuing on their work. He was actually in the causal world. In the causal world, yeah. So when we say that somebody is, has achieved moksha or is, is liberated, is that just from here? No, are it's they then? It's all, it's all, all the dimensions, all oh. three worlds. Okay, so some, some souls are just sort of doing things in different orders and have wrapped up I all the earth it's, and they go off and do the astral I stuff with Sri Yukteswar. Okay. I think you're doing it all at the same time. It's not sequential. It's not like, oh, finish with material, now finish with the astral, now finish with the causal. <laughs> I, it, but again, I'm, I'm, way out, I'm way out of my element here. I'm talking through my hat. But this is my understanding.
It's, it's not as linear as we're sort of adding it up. Because you just, you just let go of it all. You know, it just all goes away because you see yourself. Because the ego, when we use the word ego, ego is material, astral, and causal. There's ego on all three levels, which is to say identification with something other than the infinite. And we can be more and more subtle with it, but ego applies to all three words. So we realize the ego is an illusion, that the thought was an illusion, the energy was an illusion, and the manifestation was an illusion, all of it. But you untie it from the, from the post, and they all go away at the same time. Basically, when we say moksha or liberation, we mean total. We don't just mean this level. No. Yeah. Not, I mean, that's what the word moksha means. That's why we decided to use that word for Swami. Okay, which is this anniversary day. We call it Moksha Day because it's kind of like for everybody. Freedom Day. Yeah. Well, Rajasi was in Samadhi a lot, and I was just wondering, did he suffer when he was back in his body? Because you were saying that, or our Master's... Yeah, to um, to Doctor Lewis that if if you get samadhi you 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 won't be able to stand living here. No, because Rajasi grew into it. It wasn't handed to him inappropriately. There's a smaller difference. Oh no! But to to be to be activating your body is not to come out of the state of samadhi. You're, I mean, master master was fully realized. An avatar, even a jivan mukta, is free in their consciousness, and they activate their body, but they're not identified with it. And there's nothing, what causes us pain is to identify with a, a limited consciousness, not to manifest through a physical body, but to identify with that body and to allow our happiness to be conditioned by the identification and the attachment that follows from that. So, so Dr. Lewis might, so Dr. Lewis might um, even if he's in samadhi, might identify it with his body somehow no. Um, no no because the, the, the capacity to be in samadhi requires that that identification has been transcended but see what, what was going on with Rajasi let's go back to what was confusing you is somebody who hadn't done all that work and expanded and was not so free just wanted give me this experience and it was an inappropriate request and impossible to fulfill and one of the reasons why whoever was asked, which I believe was Rajasi, why he refused to fulfill it, is you don't know what you're asking. If, if you actually went into the state of consciousness, which Rajasi himself was living in, you wouldn't, it, would, it would blow you to bits. It just You wouldn't be able to integrate it with the life that you normally have. Whereas Rajasi, it was appropriate for him. It was a natural progression. It was his, his own next step. This man was just trying to skip you know, samadhi sounds good. Why don't I just get that right now? You could give me that experience. Yeah, I understand. Did that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it's, like, it's like what I was saying this morning about being lost, realizing something and then feeling lost for a little bit and then, and then being able to continue on. Right. Yeah. yeah. It must be like that, <laughs> I guess. I we'll find out, won't yeah. we? Sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof, is my philosophy. <laughs> okay. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Heidi. I um, <clears throat> was thinking about the resolving of, of karma 
and I guess one of the things that's been standing out to me is this idea of there's certain situations in my life where I feel like I'm, how can I say this? It's like where part of my journey has, I've needed to, for my own self, name the wrongness of something. If something was done to me. To not be in denial about it. To not kind of jump too quickly to forgiveness. Oh, it's all okay. When it really, certain things. Like, no, they really weren't okay. So to, to feel it enough that I can live in the realness of it and then move into um, releasing it. Then well, move. I'll give you a very good example, and actually this is the same example. This is the same woman who I was talking about earlier. After the state of grace went away and there was the long, hard journey to um, acceptance and peace, she came to Swami at one point and said, you know, everything that happened was just exactly right. It was just what, you know, just what should happen. And Swami said, no, actually, he behaved very badly. That was Swami's answer. And he said, don't comfort yourself by telling yourself a lie. He said, tell yourself the truth and then expand your consciousness to be big enough to embrace it. So, yes, people do a lot of affirmation thinking that that's really going to help them, but it won't because it's not true. Everything is just as it has to be. It was all so perfect. Everybody was just acting according to their truth. And no, you know, something very difficult happened. You can't always control the feelings of the heart. You can't always face every karma in the moment. Some things just have to be put on the shelf. Some, you know, just realities just have to be lived through. But... Don't say, oh, this was the highest possible teaching. Say, no, I just, this is what I had to do. And there you have it. And then when the karma catches up with you, you're not so shocked. It's like, well, this is what was going to happen. You know, I made these choices and these are the results. Yeah, this is a very important point. Okay, someone else? Was there a question on this side? Saranya. Thank you, Adam. So if Jivan Mukta is um, realized um, or freed freed in this life... Freed while living. Freed while living. But you're saying that you come into this life already free if you're Jivan Mukta? I mean, so then the life before that, you were not freed. I'm trying to get a a handle on that. Well, no, you say, someone, you can become a Jivan Mukta in this incarnation... And in fact, Master urged us, you know, and Swami urged us to at least become a Jivan Mukta in this lifetime. Um, or you can be born as a Jivan Mukta because you have... And that was the question that Swami asked because Master said, there's a little bit of karma still attached, but the Jivan Mukta could dissolve that karma at any point because he has the spiritual realization to do so but sometimes he just leaves the karma there because it just allows him to keep drawing him back and then he can keep helping people. But at whatever point he's ready, he can turn and dissolve it. Huh? So is that the definition of a Jivan Mukta, a person who is in that state, or does the pers- is there a stage before that? I don't, you should you- read it in Swami's book. I can't really. Okay. I believe in the Gita. He explains it all in extreme detail. Ajivan Mukta is someone, though, who has the full state of God-realization, even though 
there's still karma running. No new karma is created, according to the way Swami says it, because the Jivan Mukta does not identify at all with the Jiva. I mean, with his individuality. He's a free, he's a free soul. So karma may cause things to roll around him, but he has no identification with those events, and therefore no new karma is accrued. It just, it just runs. I mean, that, from the observation of Swamiji's life, makes sense also. Because Swamiji seemed to go through some experiences, some of them rather complicated. And you could say on one hand, you know, there was nothing there for him, but he was, it just was too, it was too complicated. Jivan Mukta works. If you look at uh, Sister Gyanamata or you look at Rajasi, both. Rajasi, you know, had just... He, Rajasi describes himself as being so nervous when he met Master that he couldn't sit still. And, you know, he just was high-strung and temperamental. And, and Rajasi also had a very difficult wife who was mentally unbalanced and physically unwell. And, you know, wow. And Master said, you got that wife in order to teach you patience. So that meant there was something there that was unfinished. But at the same time, he became, you know, a liberated soul. So, it, that, but what I, what I think? Wow, we don't know zilch about this, do we? <laughs> when Swami Kriyananda was going through a lot of what he went through when we were being sued and all of that, and people were trying to, and still do, the people who are his, um, who are his dedicated detractors, because of this, this means this. Because of this, this means that. I always worked it backwards. Wow. Given what we know about this man and what we've experienced, what I've experienced with him for all these years, and still all these things happen. Isn't this fascinating? I've always, I always said that the actual story was far more interesting than the, um, the, you know, the Maya-drenched individuals who wanted to shake their finger and make declarations. Much more interesting to say, isn't this interesting? Look what these great souls go through. And you know, what does that tell us about what the process of liberation actually is about? I always worked it backwards. Even Master, I mean, Swami himself talked about Master. You know, what Master was like was what a Master was like. You couldn't say a Master isn't like that. You know, relaxed and easygoing and very personable and very kind. Just a thousand things that he was. He didn't play the thus spoke Zarathustra role, you know, speaking from the tomb at all times. He was just a very natural, loving person. Swami Kriyananda was a very natural, loving person. So all of a sudden you work backwards. Wow, if that kind of spiritual greatness manifests that way, that tells me something about what true spiritual greatness is. There's another question here, and then we'll take a break. Um, <clears throat> there's also that matter of uh, when all kinds of good stuff are, is done, which Swami did, um, without uh, attracting karma to himself personally, that is going to uh, uh, attract a whole lot of dark forces too. And Swami, from time to time, did speak of um, that what was really happening down here was not Uh, as it seemed, but it was all basically something happening in the causal plane. Well, that it was a... The the, the drama of Swamiji's life was the drama of an avatar's mission um, 
trying to be established in this world and the forces of darkness trying to prevent it from being established. And that everything... Because I remember at a certain point when we were being litigated against and Ananda was under intense criticism and Swami Kriyananda was under intense criticism and we were being um, castigated for being the mindless minions of a predatory egomaniac and you know that whole thing somebody said you know that sort of thing um, that what people say when they want to be really evil um, and somebody at Ananda said we ought to have a day of introspection you know we ought to have our own little Yom Kippur where we all sit and sit in the temple and introspect about <coughs> why this is happening to us and <coughs> what we're supposed to learn and all that and Swami said absolutely not he said, this has nothing to do with any of us personally. He was just emphatic. It has nothing to do with any of us personally. We are simply instruments for a higher cause here. And you know, the whole cause of power, money, sex, leadership, um, that's just like, that's the, that's the karma of these, this age, isn't it? Everybody's after power, money, sex. And so that's the, that's the fight that has to go on. Swamiji himself said, the people who were accusing him, especially some of the really evil people who were accusing him, if they were in his position, they would be using it for power, money, and sex. So they literally could not imagine that he wasn't. And when they couldn't prove that he was doing it, it just made them feel that he was so damn smart he was getting away with it. But they could never literally imagine that it simply wasn't what he was doing. Because they would. And it just was so simple when you think of it like that. They couldn't see that kind of uh, goodness and freedom because it it wasn't in them to see it. So the fight had to... Master was accused of the same things, you see. So it just... It's the way it goes. Let's take a break. Um, I mean, I, I read many of these sutras just in preparation for today's class because we were running through some of these pretty, like, water. Well, not much to say about that one, but it turned out to be quite different on this case, didn't it? Okay. Yeah, that's the fun of this for me. That's the fun of doing it this way. No promises. We'll just be here till we done, that's all. Okay. So... Um, you know, the, the powerful motivation for all of this, whether we're talking about being in a state of samadhi or um, being not, um, it's all about suffering. And it's all about when the consciousness begins to oscillate in such a way that our peace and contentment is interrupted, how do we restore it to equanimity? And, you know, we, we follow, Maya persuades us that there are many, many, many solutions to that oscillation of consciousness, that dissonance of consciousness, and we try to follow them. Just this afternoon, I was annoyed about something, and I thought to myself, I've, in, when I was driving home from Ananda Village once, many years ago, <coughs> It was late at night, like two in the morning, I was doing my, after the spiritual renewal week Saturday night program, driving back in time for Sunday service, um, because you can make really good time, so there's, there was no one on the freeway, and the road was very rough, and partly just because I could, 
I rode in one lane for a while, then I changed, and I rode in another, and then like this, and I was doing that for some miles, and then there's a big red light behind me, and the policeman pulls me over, and he starts saying things to me like, you know, um, what, what's the year, who's the president kind of questions. <laughs> I'm looking at this guy. And finally, I figured out that he thought I was drunk, which was just like so far out of my consciousness. I looked at him and I said, you know, the last time I had a drink was, wait, wait, let me think, 1966. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, you weren't born in 66, were you? And I thought to myself, I don't even think your mother was born in 66. <laughs> you know, I'm so stone cold sober. I was just, the road was rough. And, you know, and then he let me go. So it's never been part of my story to do that sort of thing. But, you know, I just was, there was an, a disturbing oscillation in my consciousness. And I thought to my mind, I want a drink. You know, just almost like a joke. But it was like, yeah, like if you could just, when this oscillation comes, if you could just have that glass of wine, that beer, whatever it is, you know, just stop the oscillation. And you haven't, you haven't resolved it. Well, actually, what you've done is you've masked it. What you've done is you have d- reduced your awareness of it, is what you have actually done. You haven't in any way affected it, but you have dulled your consciousness so that you don't feel it anymore. Or you turn on the television or you go and eat a big bowl of ice cream or whatever it is that you do. Or you start yelling at somebody. I mean, you do something so that you're not feeling it in quite the same way. Or you, or you cry, all the things that we do. And, but it doesn't really do anything to actually alleviate the suffering. And so at some point, you have to solve your problems in the direction of God because that's the only thing that will actually alleviate your suffering. And, and the highest way to do that is described here in the state of samadhi that you realize that everything is just a play of light and shadow and that there's only one reality and there's only ever been one reality and that oscillation, that dissonance in the vibration is when we have identified and pulled ourselves out of that center. And so all of this is happening. You know, this is why... Um, uh, Swami Kriyananda so, uh, so worked so hard to create positive music and why he and others of us, I being one of them, I'm, I'm so um, intensely upset to be subjected to this really horrible music because it is a vibration of absolute you know, violence, dissonance, ego affirmation, greed, disregard for other human beings. I mean, just the list is enormous. And you just go out there and you just let that run through us and it's imposed on us all over the place. And what is the result? We become that. That Swamiji said music not only reflects consciousness but it also creates it because we are made of sound vibrations. We are Om. So it's, it's very, very, very important to pull ourselves back and to protect ourselves from these things. It, 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 it changes, you know, it changes what you can do in our society because we're a disintegrating society. It's just the way it is. It's a disintegrating society. <sighs> Not a happy fact, but it's just a fact. So Amit, I was reading something he said, he wrote recently. I was reading recently something he wrote and he was saying about 
listening, he said that the music that people listen to is the greatest indication of what the consciousness of society is. And he said, I see a world bent on destroying itself. That's what the music says to me. And I remember once I, uh, uh, I saw some, you know, some young people with either a boombox, you know, when people used to carry those, or in those cars that are just so crazy. And uh, I, sa- I said something. I don't know exactly what I said, uh, what, the, what prompted his remark, but Swami's answer to me was, I, I think I just said, you know, all these ordinary people are just doing this. And he said, ah, but if you could see their consciousness. Meaning he could see their consciousness. And, you know, what the consciousness was, was not pretty. It's a strange world. And, of course, a lot of people get drawn into it because they're just going along with the crowd. But, of course, it has an effect over time. But, you know, not everybody who does that for a time will stay there forever. It's a period of rebellion. Swami said also that's, of course, why the teenagers are so rebellious is because they listen to that ego-affirming music all the time. And in cultures where they don't, they aren't. Because they're not drawn into those chakras and into that point of view so strongly. What to do about it? I don't know. It's a tough one for those who are raising children. It's a very tough one. Yeah. Okay, any questions or thoughts or comments? Yes. I often think that, um, especially we've gotten so far through this book and he's taken us from describing the problem and then to, to now describing the solution, and yeah. that one of the thoughts that occurs to me frequently is we just have a complete false understanding of what is actually happening and what life is and what this world's doing. Ah, don't we? You said it, brother. Figure, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to say that. And, it, and if you go ahead up to 3.13, he says it really well. Reading ahead. Thus has been described the transformation of a false reality into its changeless essence. What is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. What is night to the worldly man is day to the yogi. So much of our time trying to fix the false reality. You said it, brother. You got it just yeah. right on the money. So, and, you know, just a little while ago, you were talking about um, um, the the other, uh, you know, yamas and niyamas are right. more outward, right. and the others are more inward. Right. And there's, we sort of talked about there's kind of a line there where your your life and your reality switches from trying to fix this thing right. to ignoring it and concentrating on maintaining your inner centeredness and your inner reality. But what we have to understand, because that sounds too self-centered, is the only way to positively affect the external world is from right consciousness. So, for example, as you've heard me say, I'm not registered to vote, and I have rarely voted in our national or local elections. Every once in a while... I dislike someone intensely and then I will register and vote against them. But I haven't done that in a long time. Um, I may have voted for Obama because I wanted a black man to lead the country. I didn't know anything about his politics, but I thought a dark face would be a really good idea. Having traveled in the world where there were a lot of dark faces, I thought it would help America to have that. And, you know, he was so fun. He was just so much less boring. 
I think I voted for Schwarzenegger actually too because he was so much more interesting than the others. But you know, those were all a long time ago. Um, but having said that, I am I consider myself to be intensely politically active because I am constantly, with all my energy, trying to make make this world a better place. But I've simply understood that consciousness is the only answer. So I don't I don't bother with the politics or anything like that because it's just a circle as far as I could see. But this is the real solution. And so you do shift, but you don't... Okay. When I ended up in my early 20s living in an ashram in the Sierra Nevada mountains with a Sanskrit name, with a, you know, following an Indian teaching and Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram, you know, all the time. I was a Brahmacharini, I was in yellow, you know, I just had all this stuff. I was like, whoa, how did I end up here? It was just so off the wall from anything I'd ever imagined because I'd never had imagined it. I, just, I had no idea it was there until it was there and then I was living it. But in retrospect, from my earliest memories, my life was a straight line. I, I had always wanted the same thing. I had wanted to, to find a meaningful way to live. I had wanted not to just fall into the trap of what everybody else was doing because I didn't know what else to do. And I wanted to be able to help other people also to find an, a, an end of suffering and a beginning of joy. But I, I, I kept having to shift what that was. But the intention was never different. It just took me a while to figure out what it actually looked like. And so I had to take and discard a number of options till the option I ended up with, which was rather a surprise, although it was perfectly natural when I was in it. But then I realized, no, this, is, this was a straight line. This was not really a left turn. It's just that I kept having to change the understanding. Um, so what does that have to do with what you said? Oh, so, that, that, so it is. It, 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 life looks like, um, it may look all different ways, but it's the inner consciousness that's defining it. And that's, if once we get that in order, then it, it will take its right form. And if the inner consciousness is, how can I dull my awareness of the suffering that I'm having now, then it's always a mess. And it just never, it never takes the right form. It just goes from one confusion to another confusion. Oh, but you were saying about how we've never been told the truth. When I was uh, in, those, in my early 20s living in the monastery there and had this little tiny trailer and I was in a seclusion and we had the Xerox copies of Yogananda's commentary on the Bible because there was no published book. And they were, they were magazine articles from the 20s and the 30s from the Self-Realization magazine. I had this big Xerox thing that we later got sued for publishing. I had that very copy that later figured in a court case, copyright case, in which it was a judge that we had in fact violated the copyright. However, it was what's known as fair use, which is legally someone else had the copyright, but what we had done was a fair use of their copyright because all the material was suppressed and it was the only way we could get it. And we didn't do it for profit. But I was reading that very copy and it was all about Jesus. I'd been raised Jewish, as you all know, so I knew nothing about Jesus, except kind of the osmosis kind of stuff that anybody gets growing up in this world, this country. And I was reading about Jesus, about Christ consciousness, and about avatar, and about self-realization, and, 
uh, reincarnation and karma, all these different things. And I remember just sitting there closing the book and just kind of, you know, looking around. I was living out in the woods in this little place and realized nobody had ever told me anything true in my life. It's just like nobody had ever told me anything that was true. And, you know, my people were well-educated, smart people, but they had never told me anything that was true because they didn't know. And, yeah, it was a little... I mean, that's why I remember it so vividly. It was a woo-woo moment, so to speak, when I, I just realized I have, I have really diverged from the Mass, which for me was hallelujah. But nonetheless, I, I realized, you know, you've really done it. You're, you are not in Kansas anymore. And I was so grateful because intuitively, I always knew that they were not telling me the truth, but I always thought, yet, I thought they would eventually tell me the truth. It was a long time before I realized they didn't know. <laughs> Bless their hearts. They were just telling me all they knew. But it certainly wasn't going to work for me. That was a fact. Does that all make sense? And so, yeah, you, you have to really take that in fully because a tremendous part of us wants to just say, oh, yeah, you know, some of what's uh, day to the yogi is night to the worldly man, but not this. You know, this I get to keep. This is actually going to work for me. This I don't really have to give up. I remember someone said to me once, I think God wants me to have nice things. There was no possible response in the moment, except, oh, you know. I've learned from Swami, what I learned from him, which is I call sympathetic clucking noises. (laughs) You're not actually agreeing, but nor are you disagreeing. You're just going, that's a... Swamiji says, acha in India. Acha in India doesn't mean yes or no. He says it means I exist, you exist. <laughs> and so that's what I would see Swami do. Huh? No, no, no. Just because he, if he couldn't contradict you, because you were way so not receptive, there was no point in contradicting you, and he certainly couldn't agree with you, but he had to acknowledge your existence because we had to go on from here. And that's, uh, I think God wants me to have nice things. Why? Why would God want you to have nice things? You know, are you listening to yourself? Can you hear what that says? You can say, I'm going to have nice things and I hope God doesn't mind. Or you can say, I really want to have this stuff and, you know, I'll work it out later. I mean, you can say anything like that. But really, let's keep it straight. But the way I used to say to people is, you know, it's all right if you settle, you know, at the base of the hill just don't call it the mountaintop. You know, don't take the teachings and bring them down into the swamp where you're living. Just like say, I like the swamp. It's nice to me. It's warm. It's kind of moist. You know, I like it here. And there's the mountain and I'm really not interested. Because then at least you know where you stand. You haven't made yourself feel good by... You can see how it is. I mean, we all play the games. We all play them follow up and ask you this question so as we start to get a glimmer of that we've been wasting a lot of time trying to prop up a false reality and uh-huh. there's a whole real thing right over here and we actually have a tremendous guru and swami and you know just it's all right in front of us we can have as much of it as we can take 
it seems to me that because when the false reality starts to appear as false reality, it also loses its, starts to lose some of its power over us, and we don't have to get all upset about things, and we don't have to get all freaked out when things happen, because that's just how it operates, and our choice is to respond or to react, and we can just choose to respond and choose to solve problems in the direction of God. So we, we, a whole bunch of energy that we used to react in all the ways that we react now is used to go forward, to solve the problem, to seek solutions, all those things instead of playing the game all the time. Amen, brother. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And it's... Uh... Pardon me? She was saying that's why Ananda people can do so much because we don't waste as much time in confusion. And that was Swami's, uh, when I forced him to compliment me somewhere back in those early years. And uh, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot he could say. (laughs) He said, well, you're a lot less confused than you used to be. (laughs) But I was. I was a lot less confused than I used to be. And that's part of it just a lot less confused. Wow, what do I actually do? What, what is the direction of God here? Instead of just the direction of endless. But it's, 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 I have a, the older I get, the more compassion I have for myself and the whole world. And the, the, the less glib I am about everything. I mean, I, li- I like to get it all in order, but I have a, just a huge respect for Maya and a lot more patience with Maya I was uh, actually saying to Atma Jyoti just the other day somebody presents to me just this huge impossible delusion that they're just completely trapped in I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic if somebody <laughs> you know puts the wrong thing in the wrong box and then stores it away and I can't find it I get really irate you know it's just crazy but it's like I really see the big picture. And I, I've, I've just, I spent a lot of my life thinking that all I had to do was get the concept straight and then that was that. And then when I had the concept straight, I tried to just, well, essentially pretend that I actually was living it. And uh, it's, it's been a great relief to have that all on a much more re- reasonable plane. And in a sense, and I, 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 it's not like, oh, if I really give it up, then God will give it to me, kind of thing. Then, you know, if I really give up my desire for nice things, then he'll give me lots of them. Um, it, uh, you know, humility gets you closer to God than um, arrogance. And honesty gets you closer to God than uh, delusion, so... You just move through it. You just cease being amazed at the capacity of the human mind to deceive itself. Wow. It's what Lahiri Mahashaya says, the man's ingenuity for getting himself into trouble is uh, whatever he says, but the infinite compassion to get us out of it is even greater. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else that needs to be said tonight before we stop? 
All right. Thank you all very much. God bless you. And we'll see you next week. And we made it through one paragraph. We did one paragraph. No, we did two, actually. We did three, seven. In the first one, I had no comment. In the first one, I had no comment, even though I made up some. Three, seven, and then we started three, eight. But we're still... Okay, when completely free? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we're up to three, eight, but we're still in three, eight.